This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I am Michael Walker. Once again, it's been a while, streaming from my bedroom. Um, I hope this isn't giving you too much nostalgia for those COVID lockdowns. I don't think I've streamed from here for a while. Um, it's because I'm feeling a little bit terrible. Um, it's a kind of fluey, coldy thing that I've been battling all week and has now got the better of me. But there is a silver lining this evening because the stars have aligned. The universe is back where it's supposed to be. And Aaron Bastani is my co-host on a Friday evening on Navarra Live. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm very well. I'm so looking forward to our our Friday tete-a-tetes coming back. Uh, I really miss them. I've got it on good authority. I've been told by people at our events that they've been missing these Friday evenings. Before we get started, Aaron, our audience are going to want to know, um, how is your first month of fatherhood? It's okay. Yeah, it's easier than people say. People like to whinge. <laughs> people like to complain. Okay. <laughs> people like to complain. No, I think, no, being serious, I think, um, I think there's probably a very significant minority of babies which are very hard to deal with um and obviously that's very hard being serious now um and i think that probably colors people's interpretation of what it's like obviously childbirth is incredibly difficult for the mother uh the first few days are very hard for the mother there's not much you can do about that as a dad um but you know it's 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 difficult but it's also very rewarding so it doesn't feel like a net negative i don't know how to explain it really it's both harder and easier than you expect Hmm, interesting. So it sounds like you're not being kept up like all night. Often new dads and new mums are sort of kind of grumpy because they can't get any sleep, but you seem like you're you're holding up okay. Um, we are starting with a, a slightly more lighthearted story than usual, partly because my brain's sort of at 75%. And we will be going on to talk about the UK economy and the Gaza war. Let's get going with that first story. Prince Harry has won a legal battle with the Mirror Group after a judge found that they illegally hacked his phone to produce a number of articles between 2003 and 2009. He's been awarded £140,000 in damages. I'm not sure how significant that sum is for a prince living in California. Um, Harry has, of course, long been at war with the tabloid press. He thinks that they don't respect people's privacy and especially the privacy of celebrities as much as they should do. Um, He wasn't in court for the judgment today, um, but his lawyer, gave this statement on his behalf. Today is a great day for truth, as well as accountability. The court has ruled that unlawful and criminal activities were carried out at all three Mirror Group newspaper titles, The Mirror, The Sunday Mirror, and The People, on a habitual and widespread basis for over more than a decade. I'd like to thank my legal team for so successfully dismantling the sworn testimony of Mirror Group's senior executives, legal department and journalists who at least turned up to court, unlike their colleagues who were perhaps too afraid to do so. This case is not just about hacking. It is about a systemic practice of unlawful and appalling behaviour followed by cover-ups and destruction of evidence, the shocking scale of which can only be revealed through these proceedings. The court has found that Mirror Group's principal board directors, their legal department, senior executives and editors such as Piers Morgan clearly knew about or were involved in these illegal activities. 
between them, they even went as far as lying under oath to Parliament during the Leveson inquiry to the stock exchange and to us all ever since. So that was the first part of Prince Harry's statement read by his lawyer. It did go, it, it was quite self-aggrandizing, I have to say. So it ended like this. Today's ruling is vindicating and affirming. I've been told that slaying dragons will get you burned. But in light of today's victory and the importance of doing what is needed for a free and honest press, it's a worthwhile price to pay. The mission continues. Are you feeling inspired? Um, in that clip, you heard Piers Morgan mentioned uh, he was the editor of the Daily Mirror from 1995 to 2004, and he came up a number of times in this case. Now, this is from The Guardian. During the trial, the former Daily Mirror political editor David Seymour told the court that staff at the newspaper heard Morgan openly discussing how phone hacking operated when at dinner with executives. Seymour, who worked closely with the editor for a decade, alleged Morgan was unreliable and boastful and apt to tell untruths when it suited him. In his judgment, the judge noted that Seymour said Morgan was no fool and knew that his journalists were involved in phone hacking. The judge added, Mr. Seymour struck me as a man of intelligence and integrity. I accept his evidence without hesitation. Um, so the judge not speaking in particularly uh, enthusiastic or complimentary tones about Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan himself, though, has come out fighting. I've never hacked a phone or told anybody else to hack a phone. And nobody has produced any actual evidence to prove that I did. I wasn't called as a witness, and it's important for people to know this, by either side in the case, nor was I asked to provide any statement. I would have very happily agreed to do either or both of those things had I been asked. Nor did I have a single conversation with any of the Mirror Group lawyers throughout the entire legal process. So, I wasn't able to respond to the many false allegations that were spewed about me in court by all foes of mine with an axe to grind, most of which inexplicably were not even challenged in my absence by the Mirror Group Council. But I note the judge appears to have believed the evidence of Omid Scobie, who lied about me in his new book, and he lied about me in court, and the whole world now knows him to be a deluded fantasist. And he believed the evidence of Alistair Campbell, another proven liar who spun this country into an illegal war. Finally, I want to say this. Prince Harry's outrage at media intrusion into the private lives of the royal family is only matched by his own ruthless, greedy and hypocritical enthusiasm for doing it himself. He talked today about the appalling behaviour of the press. But this is a guy who's repeatedly trashed his family in public for hundreds of millions of dollars, even as two of its most senior and respected members were dying, his grandparents. It's hard to imagine, frankly, more appalling behaviour than that. As for him saying this is a good day for truth, the Duke has been repeatedly exposed in recent years as someone who wouldn't know the truth if it slapped him around his California tanned face. He demands accountability for the press, but refuses to accept any for himself for smearing the royal family his own family, as a bunch of callous racists without producing a shred of proof to support those disgraceful claims. He also says he's on a mission to reform the media when it's become clear his real mission, along with his wife, is to destroy the British monarchy. And I will continue to do whatever I can to stop them. I have to say, I did kind of enjoy that statement from Piers Morgan. Um, Aaron, um, maybe it's because I'm working at 75% capacity, but I, I haven't really worked out a take on this or whether I really care. Um, I wonder if you have. Um, what, what insight can you draw from this conflict and this outcome? 
Well, you should care, Michael. It's a huge overstep by the media into the private lives of, of individuals. Uh, I'd say citizens, well, not citizens, of course, we're subjects to the crown, to Harry's old man, technically, and previously his grandmother. What gave the game away there with Piers Morgan for me, Michael, is his kind of detournement at the end towards, of course, attacking Meghan Markle. Of course, because it's Piers Morgan. Um, when he sort of said that, look, Omid Scobie, he starts quite legalistically, right? Omid Scobie isn't somebody necessarily to be trusted. They've been found to be not telling the truth in the past, in the recent past. Alastair Campbell, those are quasi-legalistic arguments, aren't they? Um, these are people who are witnesses or bringing forward certain claims um, or corroborating certain things who perhaps can't be trusted, right? That's fine. You, you're, you're, you're perfectly um, at liberty to call into question the character um, of somebody giving testimony in a, in, a, in a trial or any kind. That's a you know, perfectly fair thing to do. The fact he then talks about you know, uh, Harry writing a book um, and the Queen, I mean, for me, it just smells like bullshit. My bullshit meter goes from you know, zero to 10 because this is somebody who's very versed in the dark arts of media management and reframing the political conversation. I go Piers Morgan. Uh, and I think this is a classic case of him doing precisely that. Why do you want to change the conversation away from phone hacking and illegal intrusion into people's private lives into a book that Harry wrote last year or the fact he's doing a podcast series with Spotify? There's only one reason why you would do that, because you don't want to talk about the substance of the case itself. I suppose what I'm uh, maybe a bit more cynical or sceptical about is sort of Prince Harry. I'll, I'll read his final statement again, or sort of the end of his statement. He says, I've been told that slaying dragons will get you burned, but in light of today's victory and the importance of doing what is needed for us, free and honest press, it's a worthwhile price to pay. The mission continues. Do you think he's really fighting for a free and honest press? I mean, it seems to me more that he's a bit annoyed that there was some negative coverage of him and his very famous wife. I mean, maybe I'm being overly dismissive. Well, we don't know the guy. I think it seems a bit unfair to say that, you know, he, I don't know what he thinks. I know that he lost his mother in a, in a, in a tunnel after being chased by the paparazzi. Um, I know that he's had his entire adult life and his childhood contorted by people precisely like Piers Morgan and, and, and people like Rupert Murdoch and people who control the media industry in this country. So I can see why he'd be very angry with those people and why he would want the media done a different way. Now, I don't think Prince Harry... Uh, has you know a fully worked out critique of the media, its relationship to uh, political power, wealth, um, elite privilege, of which of course he is a part. And I'm not suggesting for one moment that Harry is you know a radical. He's willing to you know turn the world upside down. But I think from his own lived experience, and I, I use that word properly, we hear it all the time. But I'm I think it's a fair phrase to use here. Like I say, he lost his mother in a in a tunnel in Paris, driving away from uh, paparazzi who were making her life miserable. They gave her depression, these people. Um, I think it's reasonable to, to conclude he probably has a, a, a decent critique of the media that's relatively worked out. And he's seen, you know, I think, you know, Michael, you have to remember his mother was the most famous woman in the world at the time. He has seen possibly more than anyone else firsthand uh, what media intrusion can do to, to somebody's psyche. So I, you know, I, I have no reason to disbelieve him. I mean, this is why, Michael, we need to get Harry and Meghan onto Navarra Media. We need an exclusive interview with Ash Sarkar to really get to the facts of the matter. Because it's very easy, like you say. I mean, this seems to be the implicit point you're making. It's very easy to say when you've got a personal axe to grind 
the media is awful. This needs to end. Okay, structurally, what would the alternative look like? Of course, he's never really put any flesh on the bone when it comes to that. There's sort of two ways of looking. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, of course, but sort of like there's there's two ways of sort of critiquing the media, which is that it's too intrusive. It doesn't have enough respect for individuals and it's, you know, it doesn't have enough respect for celebrities, essentially. Um, and there's one that, you know, it's controlled by corporate interests and therefore doesn't publish the real truth. Um, you know, Piers Morgan, I suppose, would say that he's on the side of free speech and truth seeking here. Harry would say, you know, what was on my voicemails is in no way in the public interest. I probably do agree with him on that one, but I'm not sure if what our press is, what you know, what our media ecology needs is more protection for the rich and famous because they've already got quite a lot of our libel laws. Um, so, you know, if we do have a Leveson 2, I'd want to see it go down in a different direction to to one whereby it's harder for journalists to write gossip about celebrities. I mean, I, I don't really care about gossip about celebrities in the public interest, but it doesn't seem to me that sort of limiting that would get us into a better place obviously politicians are also celebrities so it's easier to say that exposing them is in the public interest let's go on to our next story we haven't talked about the uk economy in a while there's been a lot going on but it's still pretty bad and the resolution foundation last week released a report decrying 15 years of economic stagnation in this country now this was the headline in the Telegraph write-up of this report. So they say, Britain's stagnant economy is costing workers £10,000 a year, says Think Tank. The Think Tank being the Resolution Foundation. They say low investment disease in the public and private sector has damaged productivity. So a very um, cutting um, analysis by the Resolution Foundation. To his credit, though, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, so the man responsible for the economy and a leading member of the Conservative Party who've been in charge of the the, the whole country for 13 years. He attended the launch and spoke at the launch of this damning report. Um, and he offered this defence. I think it's uh, a really interesting report that's asking all the right questions. Um, but I think uh, I fundamentally and profoundly disagree with Torsten's view uh, that, you know, the great advantage of doing badly, which I just heard him use those words, of, of things going wrong, ignores the context. I mean, what we had was the worst financial crisis since the Second World War, which affected lots of countries, not just our country. And since 2010, we've actually grown faster than Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Austria, Germany, Japan. In fact, the majority of the countries that Torsten was comparing us to. We've grown faster than them. So I think it's absolutely right to say, why have all of us fallen into this uh, low growth uh, paradigm and what can we do to get out of it? Um, but I don't think uh, this is something that we are uniquely in a bad situation uh, with respect to. I think this is affecting all Western nations and you have to have a plan to get out of it. That's Jeremy Hunt there. I mean, it's on the face of it, a persuasive argument. He's saying, yes, we might have overseen um, a, a period of, of stagnation. It might feel like people haven't got any richer, haven't got any more hopeful over the past 13 years when we've been in power. But don't blame us. Um, it's not a UK thing. It's not because of the decisions we've made. It's a global thing. It's out of our control. We've just been doing the best we can in a very bad situation. And his evidence for that is that GDP, GDP growth in the UK has been a bit higher um, than many other countries in the OECD. Um, now, 
Thorsten Bell, who you sort of heard Jeremy Hunt reference in that answer, he is the director of the Resolution Foundation. He puts out an email called Top of the Charts every week, and he, he put one out today, um, and he responded um, to the point Jeremy Hunt was making. So he writes this, after last week's ending stagnation launch and top of the chart special, a few people asked me how to reconcile some of the statistics in the book, e.g. productivity growth having been half the OECD average over the past 15 years, with those that government ministers tend to use in response, that the UK's headline GDP growth since 2010 has been stronger than some competitors. So exactly what Jeremy Hunt said there. This is worth explaining. GDP-wise, the UK looks okay, thanks to a growing population. Government ministers are less keen to mention the high migration cause, but it's GDP per capita that really matters, especially for living standards, so that should be our focus. Here the UK does worse. In fact, ultimately, it's productivity and wages that really matter. Employment can't keep going, can't keep growing forever. So this week's chart of the week confirms that the last 15 years haven't been a triumph. Only basket case Italy has performed worse than us, with the US, Canada, France, and Germany surging ahead. So this is the chart of the week that he's referring to. And you can see here, if you take 2007 wages as a baseline, average wages in the UK haven't changed at all since. So they went way lower, then they sort of recovered, and then they went back down after COVID. In contrast, in the USA and Canada, they are over 15% higher than they were in 2007. In France and Germany, they are between 10 and 15% higher. Only Italy has done worse. Um, the Netherlands is also on there. They're now having a bad time, so they were doing better throughout the decade and have now had um, a, a big fall in their wages per hour. That's in part because they're even more reliant on gas than we are. Of course, the Netherlands has just voted for far-right far gear builders. Um, and Italy already has far-right Maloney in charge. So those bottom three, the Netherlands and Italy, both with uh, far-right largest parties, and then the UK there, I mean, depends how you want to classify the Conservatives. Aaron, it does seem surprising to me, the, the regularity with which we have government ministers sort of coming out and saying, look, our growth isn't that bad. It's It's been better than these countries. Why are you complaining? Well, that's literally just because we have more people, right? Adding Adding people doesn't make us richer. You know, I suppose you could say it gives us a bit more geopolitical weight as a country, but it doesn't make anyone in the country richer because you're dividing, you know, the, the total amount by a larger number of people. Seems, you know, pretty bizarre they've got away with this for, for so long, doesn't it? Well, it says a great deal about the media, Michael. You can say the economy is growing purely by virtue of more people being in the country and nobody picks it apart. You know, for a long time, Michael, we've been in this game for a while, right? Really, until 2018, nobody was talking about GDP per capita. Nobody. Um, we've had, on the one hand, over the last two years, 1.3 million people entering the country with regards to net, mig net migration. You can like that, dislike it. I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent personally. Um, but I understand the problems that causes because, of course, if you have 1.3 million people entering the country but not the infrastructure to help them, you're not building the houses, you are going to have massive, massive problems. And I think there is something of a denial on that on the left. Okay, You have to obviously build things for people to use if you're going to have that kind of population growth. Um, and one thing I really do find quite amusing with the Tories, Michael, is, of course, on the one hand, they say, migration's too high, we have to get it down, even though, of course, Priti Patel, it turns out, when it comes to migration, was probably the most liberal home sector in British history. Just goes to show, don't listen to what they say, watch what they do uh, when it comes to politicians. Um, but uh, they don't mention that when it comes to GDP. 
Of course, you know, I think this year we're looking at tiny, tiny economic growth, tiny growth, the same last year. And of course, the per capita base is actually, it's negative. Definitely last year, I think this year as well, that's what we're headed for. Um, it's negative. So what that means is GDP per capita, GDP per person is actually falling. Now, the idea that we're performing better than other people, somebody like Jeremy Hunt would look at France or Italy, and they would say, well, look, we've got a bigger GDP than France, um, uh, bigger GDP than Italy. Per capita growth is actually you know, slightly better or the same than both of them, if he was responding to the point I just made since the global financial crisis. Let's look at the Netherlands, Germany, the Nordics, USA, Canada, Australia, Ireland. Very different story. Um, in 2007, the UK GDP per capita, which is GDP divided by all the people in the country, right? Which is basically economic production per person on average. The UK was above America, above the United States in 2007. Now, I think GDP uh, in terms of GDP, nominal GDP per capita is about 25%, 35% higher in the US. Uh, so something really significant has happened. Really similar story, basically the same story with regards to uh, the Netherlands, uh, the, the Nordic countries. If you look at somewhere like Ireland, and of course, it's a very complex story because nobody's suggesting that Ireland is some economic utopia, huge amounts of foreign direct investment from, from tax-dodging global corporates, uh, which basically massage the books. But in any case, you know, Ireland's GDP per capita now, Michael, is almost around double what it is in the UK. Uh, and that was unthinkable 15, 20 years ago. So Britain, particularly in relation to the other Anglophone countries, Australia, Canada, the US, Ireland, is clearly suffering, clearly. And the root cause of that, let's stop talking about GDP for a moment, because of course, as you said, they like to talk about the aggregate figure, not per person, because it's politically useful for them. Uh, productivity. Productivity is the best thing to look at because, of course, if your productivity isn't going up, then your GDP per capita isn't going to go up, right? If you're not producing more per hour and you have the same number of people, you have the same output per hour. Uh, so productivity is the main thing here. And UK productivity has been absolutely stagnant since 2007, 2008. Been going nowhere. Now, what you'll see in response to that from, again, the, the, the monster bonces, the big brains at the Financial Times who didn't even mention the per capita stuff until, you know, seven or eight years after this was all obvious, they would say, well, in certain sectors, it's very, you know, we've got very high productivity and in others, it's very low, like the public services, NHS. Uh, we haven't got time to go over that today, but labor-intensive industries like teaching, like health, very hard to get productivity gains in those kinds of jobs compared to manufacturing cars or moving data around on a spreadsheet. Uh, the, the basic problems of the UK are a lack of infrastructure funding, a lack of investment in terms of human capital and people, education, and the incentives are all screwed up in this country. You know, we have financialized everything, everything. Um, if you look at outsourcing markets um, and you look at privatization, in terms of the size of our economy, Britain is far and away the number one, maybe with the exception of New Zealand, in terms of what we've privatized. And that has created so many stupid incentives uh, from water. Thames Water, of course, looks like it's going to the wall next year. That's because of the economic mismanagement of Macquarie over a decade. They sold it a few years ago to rail, to high streets. All the incentives are skew with. They're all screwed. 
because that allows investors to basically treat the whole of society like a series of trades. That's the actual critique we need to have. But of course, the right would say, well, productivity is not going anywhere because, you know, uh, migrants and uh, migrants are in the country and they're not bringing the right skills and they're bringing it down and blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. Bullshit. Uh, the other countries I spoke about a moment ago from uh, the United States to the Nordic countries are high immigration countries. We have serious problems on productivity and in many ways they're uniquely British. Mm, I mean, you, you said that so GDP per capita, you're saying it has grown more in France. No, it has grown more in Britain than France. I feel, or is it total GDP that's grown more in more in Britain than France? Broadly the same. I mean, broad, broadly, broadly the same. Um, so if you look at French productivity is much higher, but they work less hours. So they work less, um, yeah. yeah, so France works like, God knows, I think like six, seven hours less a week on average. But of course, because their productivity is higher, their GDP, they're slightly below us, but it's, it's, it's the same. In terms of your mm. quality of life, it's the same. And they probably have a but smaller work working less. age population as well, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Let's go to our next story, Back to the Guards of War. On Wednesday, Israeli ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hodavelli, admitted what many had suspected for years. He Is there did. still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October, and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build but a but new does one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own. Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized they in have 7th a state, of The answer is absolutely no. Sorry, my introduction has had what many have suspected for years. What I should have said is what many have known for years and many have been trying to ignore. You know, so we've been we, we've known, we talked about for a long time on this show, um, that the party that Sipi Hotavelli is a member of, um, the governing party in Israel, they have no interest in a two-state solution. They say it all the time to their own population, but they try and put on a different face to the West. And that has meant that Western politicians and Western journalists um, have been able to pretend that Israel wants a two-state solution. Sipi Hotalevi is just confirming in English what we already knew, which I think was quite helpful. Um, it has definitely shifted the dial when it comes to news coverage. The Israeli ambassador there was speaking to Sky's Mark Austin. And later in the week, Mark Austin um, decided to put those comments to the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hassam Zomlot. No two-state solution, she says. After everything that has happened and is happening, do you envision an independent state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel? I don't envision. This is reality. We are a people and the people live on, on our land. Uh, we have uh, legitimate uh, representation and government. That is the PLO. Our platform is very clear. There is international consensus on the need that Israel ends uh, its occupation uh, uh, that began in 67 and that a state of Palestine is established uh, with Jerusalem as its capital and a fair and legal resolution to the issue of refugees. <clears throat> right. That uh, that uh, 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 that interview with the Israeli ambassador uh, uh, should not have been shocking to you, uh, Mark. Uh, uh, I think uh, what she said was not really the shocking part because she has been saying this for a long time. Right. And, well, and, her and, point and, her, and her government yeah. was saying this for a long time. Right. I, I'm really shocked that you were shocked and the rest of the world, the UK government and everybody else was shocked. I mean, this has been happening for for decades, uh, Mark, not just by Israeli words, right. by Israeli deeds. What I thought was really great about that interview, we're going to show you a bit more of it in a moment, but is, you know, it's often the Palestinians who are put forward as, you know, the extremists and the Israelis are the moderates. But then you've got two ambassadors, so one for the Palestinian Authority, one for Israel, and for Israel, she's saying, hell no, we don't want a two-state solution. That's crazy. That's out of the question. 
And then you've got the Palestinian ambassador who's saying, look, international law is that we want a two-state solution. Everyone says, you know, everything he's saying is just sort of, he sounds more like what the American president would say, you know. He, 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 he's sort of almost saying the Western consensus. Well, the Western consensus in terms of what they say, obviously the problem with the West when it comes to this issue is they say one thing and they do another. So they say they want a two-state solution and then they give Israel unconditional backing while they make a two-state solution impossible. But I do think that sort of if you if you showed the British public, you know, a picture of the Israeli ambassador and the Palestinian ambassador and you sort of said to them, which of these two is the more extreme? You know, I'm sure most would point to the Palestinians now, I mean, partly because of racism, presumably, but also because of what people have read about Israelis and Palestinians in, in the press. Then if you'd showed them those interviews, I wonder what they would say afterwards. That'd be a very interesting social scientific experiment to do. Um, let's go back to that interview. Her point is that everything changed on October the 7th, the murderous attack on October the 7th. And she's basically saying, why should we <clears throat> negotiate a two-state solution? Yeah, because before the October the 7th, the two-state solution was being really implemented by her government. I mean, uh, look at uh, who she is. Just uh, for example, she was the Minister of Settlements before she arrived to the UK as the ambassador. And Israel has uh, increased its settlement building in the occupied West Bank <clears throat> by 500% while we were in the middle of the Oslo peace process to achieve a two-state solution. We signed the Oslo process in 1993. Uh, there were uh, uh, less than 120,000 Israeli illegal settlers. Today, we're talking about 750,000 illegal settlers. The West Bank is dotted all over the place. And many commentators are saying Israel has succeeded to undermine the possibility of any two-state solution. The question, Mark, <clears throat> the question is, uh, 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 why the world has, has failed to take any action during all these years? The very people that they are bombarding in Gaza and displacing, you're talking about more than two-thirds of Gaza has been completely uh, displaced, uh, a reliving of the Nakba uh, 75 years ago. And by the way, I'm from right. Gaza. I'm from Gaza. I, yeah. know my, I know my family and my parents and grandparents. Uh, this is the right. first time in history that the same refugees are being re made refugees again and again and displaced again right. and again. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. Who, who seems the more extreme out of the two interviews we've seen? Um, this week, the, the Israeli ambassador or the Palestinian one? Hatebel is clearly a fanatic. She's a lunatic and a fanatic. And um, Zomlot's clearly just a, a, an informed professional diplomat. Uh, but the conceit behind all of this, of course, is that you have to pretend that the Palestinians and the Gazans garden, uh, are, are irrational and uh, hateful and spiteful. And of course, you know, the, the, the Israelis are almost like Vulcans, you know, these wise people. And it's a story we, we covered a, a while back, Michael, a few months ago now. Um, when you had Kay Burley and Sky make things up about Hussam Zamlot, make things up. They denigrated the man. They libeled him and slandered him uh, because they didn't think anything would happen, right? You can say what you like about somebody if you don't think they're going to do much about it. And that seems to be the approach of much of the media in relation to uh, Palestinian spokespeople. Uh, but clearly, once you see the man talking and hear what he says, he's perfectly reasonable. And the point in regards to uh, the settlements is a huge one. You know, the, the PLO, who, of course, were the, the, the signatories to the Oslo Accords, um, sort of quasi-precursor to the Palestinian Authority. They are signatories to an agreement which, you know, basically was saying, I mean, it didn't say no more settlements, but it, the, the, the basic premises were that there would not be significant expansion of settlements into the West Bank. And, of course, they continue pretty much every day in the 30 years that have passed since. So they did, oh, well, Oslo's over. Oslo, Oslo from the Israeli side, never happened. Um, and it goes again back to that point about the West Bank. 
If this is a war against Hamas, then explain to me why more than 240 people in the West Bank have been killed. Explain to me why almost 1,500 Palestinians in the West Bank have been arrested. You have to explain that. Oh, it's Hamas. That's what they'll say. You know, I did GB News yesterday with Matthew Goodwin. They'll say, well, it's Hamas. Well, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, they don't get on very well. So you have to please explain that to me. Um, but it's not about Hamas. It's about, as he's very open and honest about, it's about uh, the ethnic expulsion of, of Palestinian people from Israel, um, particularly from um, right now Gaza. There's clearly a concerted effort to move people out of there. Uh, but the West Bank too, which is iterative, it's been you know incremental and it's it's ongoing. It was before October seventh, and it will continue uh, long after. So it's a stupid question, really. I mean, it just shows the level of political coverage and debate in this country. Is Oslo over? The Israelis have not they've not adhered to Oslo. Okay. Um, a very sort of strange question to ask. Now, why has Hatevali let the cat out of the bag? One answer might be, well, she's stupid. She's an idiot. She's a zealot. That's what zealots do. They can't hold their tongue. You know, the clever thing is to say, well, of course, you know, say something without saying it, right? She could have done that, but she didn't. I guess the counter argument is that this is political. She thinks there's going to be an election in Israel soon and that this is exactly the kind of messaging she would need to project if she wants to win over uh, the increasingly influential um, right-wing Israeli electorate. <clears throat> and, I, I, you know, it is increasingly right-wing. We can talk about Zionism and, and various aspects of it, uh, but I think about 60%, there was a great survey I reported on a few years ago for Navarra Media, 60% of Israelis um, basically said they hate Arabs, uh, they don't trust them, etc., uh, Palestinian Arabs, and that rose to 70% amongst the young. Um, and if you look at, for instance, Haradim, <clears throat> you know, 1% of the Israeli population in 1947, uh, now it's a really significant number. It's around, I think, maybe about 20% hovering around that, ultra-Orthodox communities, who are the sort of the electoral bedrock of people like Ben Gavir. This is the emerging uh, coalition in Israeli politics, which has dragged Netanyahu and Likud even further left. He's always been a right-wing, uh, further right, rather. He's always been a right-wing politician, but even further to the right, and it's those people that arguably Hotevali is now signaling to. It's like a bat signal. We will not recognize a potential state of Palestine. Of course, if she wants to run and she wants to appeal to the exact same people as Ben Gavir, then that's what she needs to say. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's two sort of schools of thought here. One is that she's just a zealot, she can't hold her tongue. Another is that actually she knows exactly what she's doing. Uh, and look, I think Israeli politicians will do what they have to do to get elected. That's how politicians work. But it really is incumbent now, Michael, on the British media to report this accurately and be perfectly honest that Israel does not want a two-state solution. They don't. Okay, you've got the Jewish labor movement and labor. You've got you know David Lammy. You've got people in the Tory party all pretending that the state of Israel and its government wants a two-state solution. It doesn't. It hasn't for a very long time. The difference is that Hatevali is being and Ben Gavir. They're being quite open about it. And finally, Michael, the point of liberal Zionism is that Jews have a state, okay? Now, people have a range of views on this, but that's what it means. It means they have a state so they can't see the horrors of the Holocaust and of uh, 19th century um, uh, events in Russia, in Europe, repeat themselves, okay? That's the point of Israel. That's the point of Zionism. You have a homeland for Jewish people so that they can be protected as a people. But it also means you want to be a quote-unquote normal state. Jews just want Israel to be a normal state. Israeli Jews, they just want it to be a normal state. Well, if you want to be a normal state, you're going to have to have borders. 
Okay, you're going to have to have internationally recognized borders. And by having settlements built every single day in the West Bank, you're not having internationally recognized borders. These are illegal settlements. So on the one hand, people say, well, why do you want to treat Israel so differently? They're just defending themselves. They're just a state. Why talk about them and not these other states? They are quasi-state in some ways because they want to be treated like a nation state in certain respects, but they refuse to behave like one in others. And this is hugely important, Michael, because you can't on the one hand say, we just want to be a normal state, and on the other, behave completely unlike any normal state out there. People always say, well, why do you hold Israel to a higher standard? What other country in the world is expanding settlements in another country, you know, outside of its internationally recognized border? I mean, you might be able to say Russia in Ukraine, although even that's unclear, you know, are they building permanent settlements in Ukraine? They're definitely breaking international law, let's be clear about that. Um, but whether it's that law is, is somewhat unclear. I mean, maybe there are other examples around the world, but there's definitely no one who's been doing it for 56 years, which is how long Israel has been expanding settlements outside of their internationally recognized borders. So there is something exceptional about that. You know, why do you treat Israel so differently to other states? Well, Israel is in many ways quite different to other states because not many other states are, I can't think of any, uh, are, are doing sort of settler colonialism as we speak. You know, there's obviously there's a debate about whether Israel is settler colonialism within the 1967 borders. Um, lots of people I really respect say that it is, um, but everyone can agree, liberal, conservative, every, in, every international lawyer in the world should be able to agree that what's going on in the West Bank is settler colonialism. That's not controversial. And they've been doing that for 56 years. Right? And they said, why are you treating us differently? Why are you treating us differently? Because you're doing something pretty goddamn different. Let's go to our final story. It's going to be a shorter show than usual um, for obvious reasons. You know, I'm going to go get back into bed in a moment. Um, but we do have one more story for you. Since the outbreak of the Gaza war, no Western journalists have been allowed inside the Strip. Until now. This week, CNN was able to visit a field hospital in Gaza. It was run um, by the United Arab Emirates. So I think it's probably via the UAE that they managed to get in. It wasn't completely clear in the clip. What they found was shocking. Up until now, Israel and Egypt have made access for international journalists next to impossible. And you can see why. Since October 7th, the Israeli military says it has hit Gaza with more than 22,000 strikes. That by far surpasses anything we've seen in modern warfare in terms of intensity and ferocity. And we really, honestly, are just getting a glimpse of it here. Despite Israel's heavy bombardment, there are people out on the streets. A crowd outside a bakery. Where else can they go? Nowhere is safe in Gaza. Used to be right. a stadium. Arriving at the Emirati Field Hospital, we meet Sorry, Dr. Abdullah Al Nakbi. No sooner does our tour begin when. So, our ambulance. That's a real life. And this is what you hear all the time now? Yes. At least 20 times a day. So, as I've said, Western journalists haven't been allowed inside Gaza ever since the war began, so since October the seventh, over two months. And the first time one Western journalist is able to go into Gaza, the moment they enter a hospital, they hear an airstrike in the distance, right? That just shows you how regular, how normal this is in Gaza right 
now. Um, as I say, they travel with medical volunteers. You know, I, I, I guess that Israel still doesn't really want CNN to be seeing this kind of thing. Um, it might have been an agreement with the UAE who run the field hospital that she was visiting. Clarissa Ward is the journalist. Um, in the clip next, um, she speaks to a young girl who had her leg um, sort of crushed um, when Israel bombed her home. And then new casualties start to arrive. They are from that same bomb that we heard when the CNN journalist first entered the hospital. A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. What's your name? What's your name? The doctor asks. The notes provided by the paramedics are smeared with blood. A tourniquet improvised with a bandage. Since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago, it has been inundated with patients. 130 of their 150 beds are already full. So let me understand this. You are now basically the only hospital around that still has some beds? I guess so, yes. Or maybe I'm very sure of that because they are telling me uh, one of the hospitals with a capacity of 200, uh, they are accommodating 1,000 right now. And the next door hospital, I'm not very sure, he said like 50 to 200, uh, has maybe 400 to 500 patients. So at one occasion he called me, he said, I have three patients in each bed, please take any. I said, send as many as you can. I mean, we've been here 15 minutes and uh, this is already what uh, we're seeing. This is, you hear it, you see it. I think it's important. Again, they've only been there 15 minutes, right? The first time a Western journalist has been allowed into Gaza. Within 15 minutes, they hear an airstrike and then they see people being taken into a field hospital, probably with limbs that need to be amputated, right? So also you heard the doctor say there, I mean, as far as I understand from that clip, you know, there'll be lots of people in hospitals which existed before the war, you know, so permanent hospitals. Um, he's saying free to a bed there. Um, so the UAE have come up or come in and, and set up this field hospital, so sort of a temporary hospital for a war zone. Um, and that's the only hospital in that part of Gaza that has any space whatsoever. Let's go to the next part of that report. In every bed, another gut punch. Less than two years old, Amir still doesn't know that his parents and siblings were killed in the strike that disfigured him. Yesterday, he saw a nurse that looked like his father. His aunt, Nahaya, tells us he kept screaming, Dad, Dad, Dad. Amir is still too young to comprehend the horror all around him. But 20-year-old Lama understands it all too well. Ten weeks ago, she was studying engineering at university and helping to plan her sister's wedding. Today, she is recovering from the amputation of her right leg. Her family followed Israeli military orders and fled from the north to the south. But the house where they were seeking shelter was hit in a strike. The world isn't listening to us, she says. Nobody cares about us. We have been dying for over 60 days, dying from the bombing, and nobody did anything. She saw that a baby or a toddler, very, very young child with no family, right? Too young yet to understand the significance of what has just happened to them. And then you've got a young woman, you know, with a whole career ahead of her, lost a leg. And you think the consequences of this war 
you know, the, the human tragedy right now is, is, is immense, but the consequences of this are going to last for generations. You now, people who are permanently, significantly, life-alteringly disabled for the rest of their lives and people who, have, who are going to grow up with no family. Right? And this is all a war which the West is backing to the hilt. The idea that you can do this and then seek peace, I mean, what are they thinking? You know, the, uh, this amount of human damage makes sense if what you're trying to do is you know, ethnically cleanse a place, make it impossible to live. It's difficult how to see that this would be logical if what you want to do is what the West say they're doing, which is taking out a terrorist organization and liberating a people so that they can have a new moderate government, right? If you've, if you've disabled a huge proportion of a population, if many of the people left have, have, have had their entire families wiped out, will have to spend their whole childhoods, you know, without their parents and, and siblings. I mean, presumably that person might grow up with their auntie. I don't know. There's going to be, you know, so many people with these incredibly tough, you know, distressing decisions to make. That's all because they've been dropping you know, 22,000 bombs or so in one of the one of the most densely populated parts of the world. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise that this is happening. It's just so shocking to see it. The summary from the CNN journalist, as I say, I think this was a good report. CNN, you know, we've had our critiques of um, throughout this war we will continue to have them um, but this report was very powerful and so was the summary um, the CNN journalist sort of delivered and um, let's take a look at that last part of this film words of condemnation delivered in a thin rasp <laughs> but does anyone hear them <laughs> like Grozny Aleppo and Mariupol Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare it's getting dark, time for us to leave. A privilege the vast majority of Gazans do not have. Our brief glimpse from a window onto hell is ending as a new chapter in this ugly conflict unfolds. The part there sort of of her statement that I found quite remarkable was, was this saying, like Grozny, Aleppo and Mariupol, Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare. And why I found that, you know, quite exceptional, almost surprising, Aaron, is because by using those examples, Grozny, Aleppo, Mariupol, you are associating Israel with Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad. And while I think that's a perfectly legitimate comparison here, somewhat unusual to see that in corporate mainstream media, because in corporate mainstream media, you know, they're normally trying to hold up the facade that the kind of, you know, those guys are a different Breed, you know, Russian foreign, but you know, you, we might have problems with Israeli foreign policy, but it's completely different to Assad. It's completely different to Putin. What they're doing is, you know, for good reasons, they're probably trying to, to limit livelihoods. They're part of our team, the civilized team. And so to hear Israel's government compared to the governments of, you know, American enemies seemed somewhat new to me. Well, it's, well I think it's worse than Mariupol and Grozny, Michael, because they can't go anywhere. Um, as disgusting as those events were, and they were war crimes, and there was an illegal war in the in Ukraine by Russia, people could leave Mariupol and go to, uh, you know, Lviv or other parts of Ukraine which were safer. They 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 can't do that in Gaza. They are they're just ducks in a barrel waiting to be shot at. Um, we've seen, according to UNICEF, five thousand children have died. UNICEF, okay. Um, the Palestinian Health Ministry, and of course that then has the criticism of us, Hamas backed or whatever, Gaza rather, backed Health Ministry. Um, I think it's about 19,000 people have died overall, but UNICEF are now saying 5,000 children. And like you say, Michael, we, we, we talked earlier on about a two-state solution. 
that needs to happen. Obviously, a ceasefire needs to happen. People who are supportive of Israel say, well, there can't be a ceasefire until Hamas are eradicated. How is this eradicating Hamas? You tell me. I'm not just killing 5,000 children, but like you say, Michael, destroying the lives of you know, multitudes more. How is that eradicating Hamas? Anybody watching this, regardless of your politics, right, left, center, you can be you know, Benjamin Netanyahu. If somebody does this to your child, what do you do? What would you do? I know what I would do. I know what I would do. I would go to the grave swearing revenge. Of course I would. Any sane, reasonable person would. Of course they would. Anybody in the world would do that. And so if trying to destroy um, Hamas means you kill 5,000 children, you kill 20,000 people almost so far, so far, there's no end in sight, even if you get rid of Hamas, which they won't, you're obviously creating Hamas too. You know, it's so reminiscent of conversations in regards to Al-Qaeda and tal the Taliban and then ISIS. You know, you, you, cannot, you cannot address political grievances purely through violence. You can't. There has to be a political solution. There has to be. And, you know, uh, our, our media likes to basically live in an alternative reality half the time where they just say, well, no, that's not true. That's not the case. I would simply destroy my enemies. Well, it doesn't work like that. Because if when you, quote, unquote, destroy your enemies and you disfigure and maim thousands of children, you make many times more enemies. Okay, it's not as simple as that. I don't understand how any of this in the long term makes Israel more safe. I think every child that dies, every child that's maimed, makes Israel less safe. Every tower block that is brought crashing down in Gaza is a recruiting sergeant for people that would like to eradicate the state of Israel. It is pure unadulterated insanity. And I'd also add, Michael, it's unadulterated evil. It's evil. While this is happening, I've seen them. I've been on them. There are telegram groups in Hebrew with 100,000 plus people laughing at these scenes. I've seen those groups. I've been on them laughing. And this is a regime that we're backing. You know, there was a, a vote in the General Assembly in regards to whether or not there should be a ceasefire. 150 plus nations voted for a ceasefire. I think, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, you know, 20 against, 10 abstain, something like that. The United States voted against. They were, they were joined by geopolitical giants such as uh, Liberia, Nicaragua. Um, you had countries like Britain abstained. Shameful, by the way. Shameful. We deserve absolutely no credibility on the global stage. Zero. Um, we were joined by people like Tonga and Togo, uh, the only other major countries that sort of either abstained or voted uh, against the ceasefire were basically Germany and Austria because of their, let's be frank, their historical guilt. Uh, let's not even talk about what's going on in Germany right now, the complete loss of any sanity or reason on this, on this debate. Um, you even saw Australia um, supporting a ceasefire. You know, Australia, Canada, these are countries historically which are very tight. We're talking about the five eyes, right? This, 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 this al alliance of UK, the US, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, when three of the five eyes are voting in a very different way to the US and the UK, something quite extraordinary has happened. You know, Australia didn't just support the Iraq war, Michael. The John Howard government sent soldiers to Iraq. Uh, and now the Australian government is completely at odds with what the US is doing and even disagreeing with the UK.
This is unadulterated evil. And when people say, oh, well, why are people canvassing Keir Starmer or asking for a vote in government, um, in, in, in parliament at the House of Commons, calling for a ceasefire, what difference will it make? Well, even if it makes 0.01% difference, and by the way, it's a hell of a lot more than that, they should still be doing it. Because people look at those scenes of children losing their arms and legs and sight at the age of two, three, four, and five and say, what can I do? What can I do to stop evil? A very normal, healthy response. And we here in the UK can do something, which is lobby politicians to back a ceasefire. We're fortunate in so much as we're members of a, of a national community. We're citizens in the country, which has a UN Security Council seat, which is seen as having decent geopolitical weight. We're a nuclear power. We're a, we're a relatively influential country on the world stage. Not China or the US, but relatively. Um, and so, of course, it's perfectly reasonable to demand politicians, our politicians, do something about this. And not, like Labour, talk out both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, say that we want you know, a humanitarian pause, but oppose an actual proper ceasefire. Uh, so there's just so much to talk about this with this, Michael. And I actually think, you know, you look at the data, 76% of people in this country support a ceasefire of some kind. There are so many people I've spoken to who aren't on the left. Normal people, normies. They'll watch GP News, right? Uh, they'll vote the Conservatives. They voted for Brexit. And you talk to them and they say, what's happening there is just appalling. Because they see children being killed, Michael. They see children being killed, having bombs dropped on them. And those people have infinitely more common sense than our political class, because both the Tories and uh, the Labour Party seem to think this is fine. Our, our ambassador, Michael, I've seen few things, I have to say, in recent history, more shameful than our ambassador to the UN abstaining on this. Abstaining. At least have the courage of your convictions to support Israel. Abstaining. While 5,000 children die. Remarkable. So of course people are angry. And if you want to go and hector a politician, you should feel free to. Don't break the law, of course. Uh, don't, don't, you know, be overly intimidating. But if you want to tell a politician firmly, as a gentleman did on a train uh, recently to Keir Starmer, why are you tacitly endorsing this? Because you're not saying there should be a ceasefire. Why are you tacitly endorsing the mass murder of children? Tell me. Give me a reason why. Give me an explanation why it makes Israel more safe. Well, clearly it doesn't. How? How is it making Israel more safe? Um, these are serious questions that need to be asked of our political class. And then finally, people will say, well, look, Aaron, I agree with all that, but it's a long way away. Okay. Bad, bad to see, horrible. It's evil even. But what can Keir Starmer do? What can Rishi Sunak do? What can any politician do? Your local MP, what can they do? Well, I, I just think it's such a, it's such a get out because also, Michael, if you've got a politician, a publicly elected figure, and they care that little about a child being murdered in their bed, or they care that little about a child losing its entire family and being disfigured in its face and losing arms and legs. If they care that little, then I really am concerned about how much they care about you and me. Okay? If they have that little humanity, I'd be incredibly worried about actually, when push comes to shove, uh, how do they feel about the people they're meant to represent? So it's very important. And I think it's a, a significant... Uh, barometer of, of, of basic humanity right now. Do you support a ceasefire or not? I was just seeing that one of the, so there were two journalists from Al Jazeera who were injured by Israel and one of them has passed away today. So this, this, the war on journalists continues as well as the war on, on children, on UN workers, on everyone 
in that incredibly densely populated territory. Um, Aaron, it's really good to have you back. I'm hoping I'll be a bit more energetic um, the next time we share one of these Friday evenings together. I'm gra- I'm, I'm very happy to be back. We've got our, my sort of setup finally sorted as well, which is good. And um, uh, I'll be hosting on Wednesday, Michael. So uh, I will be seeing more of our audience before the new year. To people watching and listening who won't see me again before then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, an amazing year ahead in British politics. And I hope you stick with us here at Navarra Media and hopefully try and shape things just ever so slightly for the better. And all my love to your wife and new child, Aaron. Um, That's it for us. Have a good weekend. You've been watching Navarra Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.